Welcome to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss the exciting science behind HRV and how you can apply it to your own health and the work that you do. Just a note, this podcast does not replace medical advice, and if you're going to apply this to your own life or others, please consult with a medical provider. Thank you and enjoy the show. Welcome, friends, to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. I am Matt, again, flying solo for the third time here. Uh, This episode is really uh, good. Um, It's so good that even though there's a little bit of sound quality issues uh, at the beginning, they they worked themselves out at the end. I mean, it was 2018, so we didn't have all this uh, fancy uh, technology that we have today. We, we actually did. We just didn't know how to produce a good uh, podcast back then. Um, so uh, hang in there with it. Uh, but uh, we really talk about, uh, there, there's a study, and again, you can find that in the show notes at OptimalHRV.com. Um, it's about autism, but we go into a really deep discussion about the stress response and obviously uh, how HRV helps us measure this. Um, Also listening to this, I got a chuckle out of some of my statements towards the end of the podcast about, uh, well, why can't we measure all this? Uh, Shouldn't we know this? Uh, You know, I still hadn't quite uh, figured out, I think at this point that uh, you could uh, measure HRV is like we say for less than a dollar a day, Uh, again, uh, wasn't the right solutions out, in my opinion, at the time, which is why we create Optimal HRV. But you you can kind of see, again, it's a little embarrassing to put these out because you, you see me going for knowing almost nothing about heart rate variability to starting to get this. But uh, besides the entertainment values uh, of watching my ignorance grow into somewhat of a epiphany, uh, I think Kurt and Jerry do a great, great job talking about the connection between um, you know, the stress response, uh, heart rate variability, uh, and mental health as well. So again, link to the article will be in the show notes. Uh, hope you enjoy this episode. Again, if you can stick through a little bit of the sound issues early on, I, I think it's a really uh, great episode. I really enjoyed listening to it again. So enjoy, and I'll see you again soon. This article, um, while it is focused in on on the population of people with autism spectrum disorders. I think there are points to take away from here that are larger than being focused on autism spectrum. And and one of the things that I kind of took away from this was some of the ideas about the physiology of anxiety, um, some of the differences between anxiety and stress, that they are separate things. Um, And certainly the ideas of um, Jerry, you alluded to this last time about that, that this whole system that we're talking about, the purpose of it is to maintain balance or keep us in a, in a homeostatic state and return us to that when we get out of our, out of our, out of, out of our um, kind of stable state. So there's some really great points, I think, about this. So I'll kind of start in with a quick review. And, and if, if you're looking at the article, I think it's pointing out on on maybe the second page of the article, which should be page 33. Right after the introduction, there's about a three-paragraph description of the physiology of anxiety and stress. And I think if you're looking for something that can really encapsulate that and give you some words to say and some concepts to think about, I think those three paragraphs are really great. 
They're really well written. They're very concise. And they pack a lot in there in that they talk about both the immediate response to, to stress, which is activation in the sympathetic branch uh, of the autonomic nervous system. So they talk about that. And then they also talk about that there are kind of two components to the parasympathetic activation. And one is to activate to limit the duration of the sympathetic activation. And the other is to titrate how far it goes. And so that's part of the, of the parasympathetic division. I think that they, they just write that really well. And it's one of those that I've kind of used since I read this probably, geez, I forget how many years ago, but um, it actually wasn't published that long ago. But it's a great kind of three paragraph uh, description. Then you also get the side of it that starts to introduce um, the, the activation and the actions of the HPA axis, which gets us the release of uh, cortisol and that cascade of response, which is more of a um, somewhat, it's still an acute response to stress, but it's a little bit delayed after the sympathetic activation. So I, I think I love that section. I think it's a great three paragraph section. If you're looking for some words to use to, the, to describe this to others and understand it, it is, is a great section. So from that, I kind of want to, I want to skip into um, basically a description of what this study was and what the goals were. So it really kind of had three goals. One was to determine whether or not there is a difference between um, both the uh, resting states across these three groups of, of subjects. One group being healthy controls, second group being individuals with ASD, and the third being people with an autism spectrum disorder and co-occurring anxiety. So it really was to look at the differences between those two, one at rest and two, the responsiveness to a psychosocial stressor. And they used this test called a, a psychosocial stress test. And I thought that their adaption to this was, was, was pretty, um, was pretty uh, uh, astute in that um, the, the typical psychosocial stress test has been characterized by a baseline or a rest period. And then you prepare to give a speech and you get a preparation period to prepare a short speech. And then you have to um, be able to remember a number for later or trace, a, trace an object for later and remember it for later under a, a timed situation, which is meant to increase some, some stress. And then you got to give this speech about yourself. And then you have to do an arithmetic task. And then you get to recover from it. And I thought one of the things that in the, in the methodology section of this, this test that they did that it was pretty interesting in how they adjusted the psychosocial stress test to people with autism spectrum disorder who often have um, a, a heightened ability and a preference for arithmetic tasks is they changed it and said well, maybe arithmetic would not be a psychosocial stressor for this group given the characteristics of this individual group. I thought that was interesting. So that was this test, right? So the, the, this was a, a, a group of, uh, of uh, uh, younger people. Uh, you can check out the demographics for ages, but these were all, none of these were adults. So these were all uh, children with, with autism or without autism and, and, or with anxiety. And, and they go through this test and then you get to see this great big panel of data that I think is important to go through and see like, what is it that we're looking at here? So if, if people are looking at this study um, and looking at the article, and I'll kind of go through these panels, um, they're, they're on page 37 of the article. And there are one, two, three, four, 
five panels there to look at. I thought I'd kind of go through those and, and just kind of explain what we're looking at here. So in panel A, what we're looking at is mean heart rate in beats per minute across these three groups. So each line represents a different group. And then you get three different phases essentially of exposure to certain events. So and each data point is a measurement point that they used to take all these measures. So they measured heart rate, they measured heart rate variability, and they measured uh, salivary cortisol response. So you get these different kind of measures and each one of these panels is showing a different measure. So what we see in this one, in the first panel, panel A, is that across these three different conditions, there were differences in both the resting state and measured by heart rate and the response to the stress. But what we saw was that in the, the open squares, what we see are, are individuals with autism spectrum disorder without co-occurring anxiety. And they had a higher resting heart rate as a group than the other two groups. And then the middle group was people with autism spectrum disorder and co-occurring anxiety. And then the, the group with the lowest level of baseline um, average heart rate and beats per minute was, was healthy controls. The next, uh, skip over that to the third data point in this panel. And what you see is in this stress condition, everybody then, all of the individuals in this group responded by an increased heart rate. One of the interesting differences here is that the amount of change was lower for people with autism spectrum disorder and co-occurring anxiety relative to the change that the other two groups saw, which is pretty interesting when we think about the correlation between experienced anxiety and physiological measurement. Right? That you would imagine that if you have anxiety, that your response to a psychosocial stressor would be greater, not less than. And interesting here, we saw that the responsiveness was actually a little bit less. That's panel A. In panel B, what we're looking at is the cortisol response. But here we're looking at the activation or the activity of, of the HPA axis. And what we see is that um, they all started out pretty equal. And actually, cortisol decreased for all three groups during this rest, this pre-baseline period. And then you introduce this psychosocial stress or the stress test. And the, the two groups, other than the group with autism spectrum disorder and co-occurring anxiety, both had an increase in the cortisol. People with anxiety and autism had almost no response, no response of the HPA axis as measured by cortisol levels, which is really interesting. Uh, again, then we get this attenuated kind of response to a psychosocial stressor even though we have an anxiety disorder uh, that's, that's present in this group. Panel C and D are great measures of the balance between the parasympathetic and sympathetic divisions of the autonomic nervous system. In panel C, we're looking at heart rate variability, which is a measure of parasympathetic or vagal tone. But what we see is across the three groups, you have heart Rate variability, almost the same across all three. And then actually during this rest or this pre-baseline period, heart rate variability increased. And that means that as heart rate variability increases, heart rate tends to go down. And that's, an, that's a measure of, of the activation of the activity of, of the parasympathetic nervous system. And then when we in, introduce this stressor, heart rate variability decreased for all three groups. So we see less parasympathetic activation. That's usually associated with an increase in heart rate. 
And then when that stressor is removed, we get back into this recovery period, um, the variability returned back to, to its, its original levels. Panel C is this high frequency, low frequency ratio. And that's a measure of sympathetic activity. But what we're looking at in panel, when we look at C and D together, is we're really looking at one is parasympathetic activation, the other is sympathetic activation. We're looking at the balance between the two. Some really interesting stuff out of this, out of this panel, right? What we're seeing is that um, for individuals with autism, uh, they had a response pattern that was during the during rest they had uh, very little sympathetic activation. Sympathetic activation increases during the stressor and it returned back to its homeostatic state after the stressor is over. Same kind of pattern with people with autism and co-occurring anxiety disorder. And what we saw for healthy controls is that they didn't return so much to normal. Right? Their sympathetic, sympathetic activation stayed up for a longer period of time. Now this last panel I think is really the money panel. And this is talking about the this is the, the uh, subjective experience of anxiety. And so here in this panel, they're measuring what, how anxious these, these, this group of people said that they were. And across these three groups, the real interesting part here is the amount of change and that everybody said that they experienced anxiety. But what we saw here in this differential responsiveness in the physiological components of, of stress and anxiety is that people with autism and co-occurring anxiety disorders, even though they had less responsiveness of heart rate, they had less responsiveness of cortisol, and they had an attenuated response of the sympathetic nervous system, they still said that they experienced anxiety. So the subjective experience of anxiety was still present, but the physiological component was not as pronounced. That's really interesting when we think about how we can start to get organized by both the subjective experience of anxiety and the physiological correlates of it. And that they're actually separate phenomena that we could study differently, we can intervene with differently. So that took, for me, that, that point was the point at which in, in my kind of development of interventions where I came to the conclusion that even though we may not see physiological changes, we may see symptoms happen. And that led me down the road of looking at the change from baseline or the, the movement out of homeostasis being a subjective, leading to the subjective experience of anxiety or uncertainty. And that as we looked at, we've talked about the intervention of looking at heart rate and that when someone's heart rate changes from its baseline level, even if it goes down, that could still be anxiety. And we need to go and engage with that person then. So that led to that, this study led to that intervention of looking at this physiological measure and, and responding to um, even a decrease in physiological arousal as if it were producing anxiety because it changed away from homeostasis. So that's kind of where, that's where this study led me uh, to go to and, and all these different measures. Um, and again, there, there's some pretty complex statistics in here uh, that I think in terms of the larger point um, aren't as important to, to dig into, but some of these points about the physiological changes may be correlated with the subjective experience of anxiety. Sometimes they are not, and sometimes even a decreased responsiveness can still 
produce the subjective experience of anxiety that requires some intervention. So from there, um, Jerry, I'm just I'm wondering what your some of the things that you've thought about as you read through this and and, and kind of heard what I've introduced um, as you think about it. I mean, there are lots of other phenomena we could talk about in terms of dissociation or window of tolerance, and so many different kind of avenues to go into with that. Uh, share some of your thoughts would be certainly interesting. You know what um, came to my mind, both reading it and listening to you, um, was the work of a woman, um, I want to say her name is Lisa McTeague, um, and she does some work looking at um, anxiety, but using startle response. And in her work, um, people with social anxiety and people with phobias have a large reaction to and a large startle response, um, as does people with um, single episode PTSD. But people with complex trauma actually have less of a startle response. Um, and what their research said is people with complex trauma have less of a reaction, but their reaction escalates over time. So, you know, when we begin to look at some of this physiology um, and we begin to try to kind of hypothesize, I think in the article they came up with some hypotheses about why this might be true. Um, you begin to think about this issue of both over-responding to situations, but also under-responding. Um, and, you know, if I'm with somebody whose um, who's biology, it tends to, when presented with something that we would think would be triggering, if I have an under-response and then later on have an over-response, I could be in a session with somebody talking about something, they seem like they're, they're managing it really well, and then they leave and they blow up later on. Right. And we don't necessarily make connections between what we were talking about and what happened later on. Right. Um, or the person could have a major reaction with you and actually may be able to manage that and do really well right, based on your physiology. And so just looking at this issue of um, both trying to understand the physiology, but also trying to understand people's subjective experience um, and why that might be true, right? So trauma people always look at kind of fight-flight kinds of reactions as opposed to um, withdrawal and submission. Kind of, right, to kind of looking at that piece. So, um, and I think it's a really interesting situation of um, looking at somebody with uh, autistic spectrum disorder. Um, what might be activating for them is just a change in the room. You know, it's like you just change the way things are. Their, their nervous systems are so sensitive in, in some respects, and so when we look at people with, say, chronic PTSD, 
they actually, it was like child, children who are exposed to abuse early in life or neglect, they actually have a blunting of their cortisol uh, responses. Right. So you wonder whether in some ways people with um, anxiety and with um, autistic, the, the, the amount of activation of their nervous systems to so many events early in life actually down regulates their cortisol so that there's not a it's not a, it's almost dissociated from their stress response right, right. Um, but it also takes less cortisol to get a larger reaction so it doesn't necessarily just because it's you have less cortisol doesn't correlate with people's subject experience of stress right right um so i i think it's a really interesting study and when you kind of take that over to trauma diagnoses, um, you see similar types of discrepancies between physiological reactions and people's experience of stress. Yeah, I thought that that separation was really a fascinating component of this, of this study. Right. So what does that mean in terms of treatment or interactions, would you, would you say? I think that for me, I mean, this is what, this is what I, I kind of took away from it was, I mean, I tend to be, um, as a practitioner, really reliant upon information and, and data that I can base things on. And what this helped me to be able to do was to incorporate one more piece of information into a more integrated view of what might be happening, which keeps me, helps me to remain curious longer. And it helped me to go, wow, I don't quite understand this one, or I don't understand how there is a discrepancy between these two pieces of information. Maybe I should keep asking questions about that. Right. Maybe remain curious and engaged about that. Uh, and for me, that was the implication. And I've found that for others as well, to, to stay engaged in the information gathering and curiosity stage. Um, and that, that was really helpful for me. So, so let me ask you, I, I a different kind of question, because I think that's really interesting what you're saying. So you as a trained clinician, you become more curious and engaged. But I'm wondering if somebody's not appearing to have a stress response, what, what do you think happens in their day-to-day -day interactions um, that is going to, in some ways, um, not validate their experiences. So, so being somewhat invalidated, mm. right? That that is a because that that is a small t, and I, and I don't necessarily like the terminology small t. Reason. <laughs> let me kind of explain why. Because when you think about the way that SAMHSA defines trauma, they look at the event, they look at the experience, and they look at the effect, right? And so sometimes when we're talking about small t, people tend to think about just the event because the experience is not a small t. It's actually their bodies are reacting as if it's a large t. They're kind of looking at that, right? And so I don't want people, in some ways, people listening to think just because it's a small t, the physiological experience of it is 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 less than if right so i could you know the example could be is i could be an autistic child and you move my room around 
that's a small T. My physiological reaction may be larger than say a race car driver who has an accident who's trained to be in race cars, right? right? And so I, I, I think that the event is small relative to other events, but the impact isn't, and the experience isn't small. Right, right. That's how I think, that's why when we talk just about small T's, I, I think that it, it requires an explanation of, for the person experiencing a small T, their physiology doesn't differentiate between that and a large state. Right. right? That's it. That's a really important. And to your component. point about kind of invalidating environments, I mean, I think we've, we've all experienced the unfortunate uh, uh, experience of going to say, feeling very, very sick and going to a doctor and getting blood tests done and there's nothing wrong with you, but you still feel sick. Like right. that feels really invalidating. And it's almost like people can't help you unless there's something wrong. And if we're kind of looking at just the objective side and not also incorporating the subjective experience. And here's a great example of a, a change and a lack of change or an attenuated response to a stressor that resulted in a subjective experience, even though there was a very diminished uh, physiological response to it. It gives kind of credence to that, I think is in, the, in maybe the introduction paragraph where the, the writers or the authors talked about anxiety as different than stress and that anxiety has three components to it. One of it is cognition. The other is what we do. And the third is our physiology. And all of those components can be related to one another and they can also be disjointed from one another, which right. is right down the pathway of trauma, that trauma does that. Trauma separates those three components so that they are not integrated with one another. Hmm. And that's a symptom of exposure to adverse childhood experiences um, or single event trauma as well, that that, that that breaking up of those three components of, of our subjective experience starts to get, right. get changed. I, I, you know, I also think that the article for me highlights, um, and you know that I've talked about this, and is for um, an autistic syndrome uh, population or a DD population, how sometimes we don't take a trauma-informed approach to it. And, and I think that understanding that the level of anxiety and sensitivity to the nervous system for both of these populations really enhance the, 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 the risk for traumatic um, experiences. Mm -hmm. And so we tend to kind of look at the diagnosis and want to treat the behavioral components of that without really understanding the subjective experience of some of these types of things. Exactly. And I think this really, this article and this discussion really highlights why we need to bring a trauma-informed approach to these populations on top of the behavioral um, interventions as well as some of the other types of skill building uh, interventions. Well, and I, I think our episode that we had uh, on autism uh, really drove that home as a, as a population I've worked a lot with as well. You know, such a vulnerability there. And I think, Jerry, your point, even though I'd love to argue small t trauma with you, uh, the rest of the episode, I don't want to hijack it. Uh, but but, but I, I really think, you know, the autistic vulnerability to trauma 
was so much of my focus while I was working with that population. And, and really, I think the other, you know, how do these two things interact with one another? I think this, this article raises a whole bunch of new questions on that too, uh, which I think is really exciting. Um, I almost want to fast forward five years with our technology and see, you know, what else we've learned um, uh, going forward. But I, I think it's fascinating, this interaction and that subjective experience and the cortisol piece, uh, again, just, just kind of explains a lot of the complexity that we see in, in fascinating ways. Right. You know, the, the, um, the complexity of human beings is, is uh, always challenging, right? Is that in order really to understand the, the particular individual in front of you, um, it would be great to go read a book on heart rate variability and stress response and to do it. And then you read some of these articles that say is there's something very unique and different about the person that's sitting in front of you or why you need to be open and curious yeah. about, about them particularly. Mm -hmm. Look at, at some of these things to kind of manage that because you can put, I could pull up a lot of articles that will talk about when you have a stress response you have a high sympathetic reaction and you have your cortisols and you have your, right? That's your standard level. And then you have these adaptations for whatever reason, you know, for whether it's a dissociative process, a withdrawal process, whether their nervous system for some reason is, is constitutionally different, but their reaction to the environment is different based on who they are and what they've kind of had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And, and really, in some ways, like how can, you know, and I, I just think about, again, working with folks on, in the, on the autism spectrum, it's like how much of some of this withdrawal and social anxiety and so many of these other things, uh, what was kind of a genetic predisposition versus environmental? And I, I think that it's, again, a lot of this throws in a lot of that complexity because of, you know, what's disassociation versus trauma, uh, or not trauma, disassociation versus autistic behavior. Um, and all this piece and, and looking at, again at this study, again, just shows that that complexity is, um, you know, what's really going on under the skin, uh, just adds a whole nother level of complexity, this whole thing. And, and what happened to you and what ha is happening to you Again, we can make we can kind of start to make those connections, uh, but but again, the, the complexity behind that is it was nice when cortisol was just the stress hormone, you know, that, that it was just that easy. The more you had, the more stressed out you had, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and yet again, the the complexity of as our technology improves and our thinking evolves, I, I think it's just fascinating. Yeah, but you know, too, something I think about is I think about all the like as I mentioned earlier, this was the, the study that kind of led me to, oh, we've got to be able to be engaged and responsive to internal states, even if there aren't physiological changes mm -hmm. that we can measure. Maybe there aren't behavioral changes that we can see either, right? We, as Jerry said, somebody in session with you or somebody going through an experience may, be, may show outward signs of handling it just fine, and then you have a delayed response to it. And like, how do we understand that? But as I thought about, like, this was the study that kind of helped me to use this, this data to design an intervention of, let's look at your internal state and let's 
do you know something as simple as wear a heart rate monitor so that we can take what's happening inside your skin outside so all of us have access to it and get organized by that information but what i have found and we're doing this you know repeatedly with lots of different um, um, populations and age groups and whether they're you know people with intellectual disabilities people with autism spectrum disorder people without you know who are traumatized like going through all these different populations I don't know that I've ever found a pattern that matched the study, but I have used it to design an intervention that was being organized by the internal state of that person. And that's what was important. Not that I found that, oh, they matched this group. And yeah, this is, this, this is exactly what we expected. It's almost never what we expected, uh, but we find something new about that person. And we go through the process of finding out, as you said, Matt, what happened to you and what's happening to you. Mm -hmm. you know, we get organized around those kind of things. Um, I found that something as simple as that really has helped a lot with um, developing interventions and having successful engagement between clinicians and, and clients and caregivers and children and family members and across all these different groups. It's really helped in leading to that kind of an intervention. And Kurt, I, I wonder, and Jerry, I'd love for you to jump in on this too, because I, I don't think I have a good necessary answer this question but if you if you're talking let's say whether it's a a in a therapeutic environment or it's in a classroom and you've got a a diverse range of children with different uh levels of traumatic experiences different kinds of mental states uh maybe some kids are doing really well some they're really struggling um all this complexity is really fun to nerd out about but if you wouldn't have access to like heart rate variability technology or getting cortisol levels, does this, does this apply? Like, could I tell my wife, Sarah, about this and what it would mean for her to look at behavioral interventions in her classroom? I kind of struggled to find that in this. I thought it was fascinating and blew my mind, but at the same time, I was trying to look for, okay, what practicality um for what most people's resources are you know the first thing that comes to my mind um which isn't the first thing i probably can't share so i'll go to the second thing <laughs> well, that, that's that's good Jerry. Way to self -regulate. <laughs> but um <laughs> so um what, what comes to my mind is we oftentimes um, make a, a, um, a, 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 a we kind of assume we know what's going on with somebody based on their behavior, right? And so if somebody's overreacting to things, we're going to make some type of assessment of that and make and, and kind of, or if somebody's not reacting, we're going to be saying, oh, they're not motivated or they're not moved or they're not right we're, we're in our minds based on our experience of our own physiology and our reactions just as kurt said his experience he didn't see something like this so he's not going to assume unless he reads an article or learns about that right so i think for teachers or for people individual it's just because your client isn't reacting doesn't mean they don't uh, they don't, are they not being impacted by what you're saying? Mm -hmm. 
right? Is that in a, in a way that's that's a really important takeaway is that somebody could look like they don't really care what you're talking about, but they're really being impacted by what you're saying. Or the other side is they could be really reacting to what you're saying, but it's not going anywhere with them, right? And so I, I think we have to really, um, and, I, and I, knowing Sarah, she's already doing it, you really have to get to know your student. And really, as Kurt said, is get more curious about when you see something going on, how do I try to understand that person's subjective experience of what's happening so that I cannot necessarily um, take my internal representation and think that that's reality, right? That's my reality. It may not be that student's reality. So I have to really check that out and kind of get curious about their experience. So I think that whether you're a teacher, whether you're a case manager, whether you're um, a therapist is in all these situations or a parent even, is how do I stop and really in some ways check out with my, um, with the people I'm uh, working with or interacting with or raising, what's happening inside of them and what's their experience of that is. So, so in really, in some ways, this more supports the trauma-informed approach. Exactly. exactly. Okay, great. That's what I was trying to say yeah. about it. it. This is a, you know, it's nice that it's done on a population. We don't tend to think about trauma in, in that population. Yeah. And yet, how much trauma is there each and every day for these individuals right. trying to manage these kind of reactions that may not look like trauma from their reaction to it? Right, right. One of the key points I think of, of the alluded to in the study is they talk about whether or not the, the physio physiological response to a stressor is adaptive or not. And we often think of this concept of adaptiveness being useful and good, right? but adaptive means reactive to. Right? And one of the things that we actually saw in this study is that the children with autism and co-occurring anxiety disorders did not have an adaptive response to the psychosocial stressor from a physiological standpoint. So their bodies did not react to organize them to deal with the stressor in the same way that children with autism without anxiety and, and the healthy or the typically developing children did, right? So there was a, there's a, an adaptive problem there, which may explain as it gets into the, kind of some of the hypotheses for why this may be, that some of the symptoms we may see for individuals with autism with things that co-occurring anxiety disorders that their bodies are not driving them to be responsive or prepared to deal with a psychosocial stressor and so they may show a differential response to it that makes some sense to us now and so it, it's it, and then and there you're going, going to jerry's point of we infer intent all the time and it's one of the things that i, I think our brains do it right like they're anticipatory so we infer intent and we get organized from an intervention standpoint based on our inferences of intent, as opposed to like more information about maybe this is part of the physiological response or a problem with the adaptiveness of a physiological reaction to it. Or maybe this is a part of the subjective experience that's getting in the way of things. So the more that we can use information to help guide our inferences of intent, right, may help us to generate much better 
information rather than to just be based on my own experience of what I have learned over the course of my lifetime. And I'm inferring intent based on that rather than information that I may get from other sources and a wider variety of sources. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Right. So any final thoughts on this? I, I think this has been a great discussion. And I know uh, if you haven't read the article, uh, hopefully we've sparked your interest enough to do so because there is some really fascinating stuff. And it, it does help to see this in graph form as, as well to have that in front of you. Yeah, the picture is nice to have, isn't that? The picture is very I nice to have. I understand it when I can look at, a, look at the graphs and go, oh, that's the timing of how this changed. And, yeah. So, so, you know, I, I think, um, some important takeaways from this is that these systems are designed to both help us regulate and maintain homeostasis, but also to activate us to respond to our environment, right? Both sides of that equation. So when there's some demand in the environment, my body has to reallocate resources to be able to effectively respond. But it also has to recover from that response, right? And so in a way, we can have people who are over-responding and not able to regulate themselves. Or you can have people who are not responding and having difficulty organizing an adaptive response. Right. And I, and I, and I think that as trauma people, sometimes we tend to over, look at those people who are overreacting and overdoing it, but, but there are people who have been exposed to some type of experience, whether it be genetically driven or whether it be experiential that they do not react to the environment and therefore have difficulty organizing what we would call an adaptive response. Mm -hmm. And it creates some problems for them. Right. So as we look at this kind of balancing neurobiology and physiology is that we, we have to be able to activate when we need to and calm ourselves when we need to. Right. And, and when we don't have experiences, we can get disrupted in either end of those. Extremes. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I find, you know, Jerry, when you say like, the, the ideas of that part of the, all of these responses are helping us to allocate resources. I think that's one of the great areas of overlap between a trauma-informed approach and, and the behavioral tradition. Is when we think about what resources are at different levels. And so from one level of analysis, allocating resources is the balance between the divisions of our autonomic nervous system. That helps us to allocate resources in terms of our physiology. But one of the areas that we also allocate resources as as living organisms is in our behavior or our reactions to what happens. That's another important allocation of a resource. And sometimes we get an over allocation of that resource and other times we get an under allocation of that resource. It's just another level of analysis. Mm -hmm. And it's not that the two, the, these two perspectives are antithetical to one another. They're just a different unit of analysis. So I think it's an important overlap between the two on why our two kind of our two fields that we talk so much about, about the trauma-informed tradition and approach with this behavioral tradition, that they need to talk to one another because we're talking about the same things in terms of allocation, misallocation, over-allocation, under-allocation. We're just talking about different units of analysis. 
So that for me is a great area of overlap between the two from a conceptual standpoint. Sure, and, and you know, as we learn more, um, we, we learn more, some, some of the, you know, even like the, the our, our diagnostic manuals, right? The, the movement to a symptom-focused kind of um, categorization of disorders was a reaction to, say, psychoanalysis that made all these inferences about complex and edible complex, right? And we wanted to get away from that. So we went to one that really didn't talk about mechanisms and etiology at all. Mm-hmm. And now we're getting away from, say, psychoanalysis to neuroscience and biology and physiology that really does have some etiology and information. And now how do we, in some ways, go back and say, now we have to relook at our classifications in a different way because we have different information. Yeah. Right? And so I think your point of it is when we didn't have really behavior, we made up kind of narratives about what we thought was going on, right? Then we went to strictly behavior to kind of explain it or what things we can measure. And now what we can measure is so different. Right. It has to it has to help us to redefine how we're seeing and understanding the disorders that we're looking at because people who have anxiety disorders and depression may look more alike than people who have both have depression, right? And and right. and that's the kind of things that we that I think some of this literature is beginning to raise for us is some of our traditional ways of understanding have to kind of be re-examined and re-questioned as we move forward. Let me ask you this question, because it came up as you were saying that, Jerry, because I, I, totally, I totally agree with you, and then maybe I did it because of what you were saying, not because, uh, because you were ex- I say the exact same thing, so I'm disagreeing with myself maybe too, but <laughs> <laughs> so, so there, I'll confuse everybody, but I wonder because, I mean, if you think about something, I mean, this, this is for a lot of medical diseases. So like, like, for example, something like HIV, we determine whether or not you have HIV or an AIDS diagnosis determined on lab results. Um, could, could what we're seeing in this article help? And, and even if we step outside our current list of mental illnesses and redefine not, so it doesn't have to be a defined as depression as we currently know it, but could we, could we take some of these readings and as our technology gets better, you know, maybe on brain scans, I I don't know, but, but is there, is there, is there something that we could take from this and from a diagnostic perspective look at these biomarkers and do a better job of creating a, a psychiatry or psychiatric or behavioral interventions? I, you know, I think, Matt, the answer to that is yes. It will take us a long time. One is because it's really hard to change systems that we're yeah. using. Yeah. And two is we have to learn a lot more about what we're doing and how to do it. So the answer is yes. But I think it also raises important uh, questions that I think you raise a lot. And that is, how do you create a a categorization of what's happening in the person when what's happening in the person 
is so much influenced by the environment that they're in. Right. So how do you begin to look at, which is a whole nother layer, that creates a challenge, which is why this is a very complex issue to begin to look at it because what we're learning about, say, trauma, is really this is an adaptation to, to environmental situations that allows us to survive in, a, in that kind of environment. So do we put a diagnosis on the individual or do we put the diagnosis on the, on the environment that they're in, right? So we've got a lot of work to do before we get to saying we got a, a really good diagnostic uh, approach that takes things all into account, right? So it's the same way with, say, for example, ACEs. Lots of people are jumping on this ACE bandwagon and saying, let's just count the number of ACEs. But you can't really understand these ACEs without looking at the relational health or relational poverty that the person was growing up in. Mm -hmm. So, right, or the demands, or was, was there community violence? Was there a lack of access to other things? Mm -hmm. Were there, right, or their financial? Was there marginalization of this, in, this culture and kind of, Right, there's so many factors that are going into whether an ACE is really going to have long-term impacts right. on the doing. So I think you're raising a really important question, but it's also going to be a while before I think we have a shift in our paradigm that well, enough of us feel comfortable with that we say, okay, here's where we're going with this classification. Yeah. Well, and I wonder too, because I, I think one of the the the, and I think it's sort of a reaction to a lack of resources, but, but I find it interesting is uh, people really do it, and some states have adapted this, is housing is healthcare. And so, and I think that addresses that environmental piece is that if somebody doesn't have permanent housing, then until we address that, why, you know, and you could, you could medicate for certain diseases as well, but it's like, we know all health outcomes improve once you get in housing. So I think that there's some interesting, and I don't think it may be coming from our perspective where this justification is. It's just like, we're pissed off. We don't have enough housing and there's some funding to get people housed. But, you know, I think that there's some interesting models out there that, might be coming out a little bit differently than we do, but but have said, okay, without you know addressing the environmental factors, uh, we can't really address these other factors because we know they'll still suffer as long right. as the, the major drivers there. And then you put the diagnostic category on the environment versus the person. Yeah, that's really what I'm raising the issue of is our classification now looks at symptoms in the person and then we diagnose the person. Yeah. And it's so much more complicated than that. And that's a perfect example. If you, if you don't have housing and your kind of body's reacting, where is, where is, the, where is the disorder? In the person or in the environment? That's well, well and, and, and let me challenge both. you. Let, let me, I, I, I agree with you to, to, to a point, but I mean, are we almost using curse language like I, the environment? Yeah. But it's almost not inside the body, it's what comes out of the body in our, because most of the DSM is on behavioral stuff. So it's kind of how, what's inside the body manifests externally. So we're, so we're almost not inside the body, we're not looking at the environment, but we're looking at these 
trying to measure some sort of behaviors, you know, in, hey, have you had a nightmare or this, that, or the other. So it's almost a manifestation. Right. And that was the best information we had when that diagnostic right. system was doing it. And all we're raising, I think everybody's raising is, we have access to new information. How do we incorporate that into however we're going to later on diagnose and categorize people? Yeah. Right? So it wasn't that there was something wrong with that system. It's just that we know different things now. So how do we adapt it and change it and kind of do it? Right. I mean, there is always this temptation with paradigm shifts to kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. You know, what was was wrong and what, what we want to go to is right. And that is not necessarily true. But what is maybe the best that we have right now, and maybe we just need to add to it as I, opposed to completely get rid of it. And, I, I think both things. One is you want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but the baby tries to hold on to the bathwater and doesn't want to get rid of it, right? It's both sides of that are true, right? It's like, oh, I want to stay in this bathwater. How are we going to get new bathwater? Is that what taking away will just give you some new bands? You see where Jerry's head, he's like, I just don't want a mad baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want the baby to keep sleeping. That's all I <laughs> That's right. That's right. Do not upset the baby. <laughs> well, well, and I think it exi it's exemplified too in the, the sort of the fight over trauma. I mean, in the latest DSM, as you looked at, there was a group advocating for a developmental approach to diagnosis. And I think all three of us probably would fall into probably supporting them in one way or the other in that, that regard. And yet, again, the baby held on uh, pretty tight uh, to that. Uh, so I think that was really frustrating to see some organizations actually refuse to use the DSM uh, because of that and other things as well. But um, always, if you're going to change your paradigm, a, a rebellion or two is usually necessary in the process. So. And is Matt's preferred response. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think people, there's, there's probably, other than the American Psych, uh, uh, Medical Association, um, who has to publish these things and kind of looking at, there's, there's, there's an there's a, there's a agreement in the field that it's a very reliable categorization of that, but it's not necessarily valid. Yeah. any longer right and it's not that it wasn't it's just that now with information and so the problem is we don't really have something as of yet to replace it right we don't have a really good agreed upon so we're agreed that this is not adequate any longer but we don't have an agreement on what should replace it mm -hmm. and i think that's where a lot of sure. uh discussion and negotiation and research and other kinds of things has to take place well, I think that's a pretty good, uh, I love where this conversation went. Uh, so uh, great discussion. Kurt, thanks for walking us through that. I know uh, maybe you can preview a little bit the next article uh, we're going to look at. Again, I'll put that up on uh, the website a little bit ahead of time as well for everybody to read. So right. We're going to move into uh, a couple of interesting um, examples of how when we look at, at physiological markers, especially heart rate variability, um, that we can predict some things like moment-to-moment -moment fluctuations in affect or emotion, 
in that um, you know, the title of one of the articles is Affective Instability in Daily Life is Predicted by Resting Heart Rate Variability, which mm. is a pretty interesting study. Um, and another one about how low vagal tone uh, tends to magnify the association between when people are exposed to psychosocial stressors and the development of internalizing psychopathology. So a couple of pretty interesting topics to, to dig into. And we'll probably, there's enough to talk about that, you know, that will probably end up being a couple of episodes to get into both of those. Um, but they, there's a theme between those two that we'll, we'll start jumping into next. Very cool. So I'll thank you for joining us for this episode. If you're interested in more information about HRV, please visit us at OptimalHRV.com. Also, if you visit OptimalHRV.com, you'll be able to sign up for our email list and download our free ebook, Healing with HRV. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next episode.